So I've got a question for you based on what you just proclaimed singing, and I've got a question I'd like you to also answer just as deeply and as enthusiastically as you just sang that. Are you ready? Yes. Oh, it's five of you. Okay, let's try it again. Are you ready? Yes. It's from Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Yes, absolutely. And what's incredible is we can talk to him and he wants to hear from us. So let's talk to him right now. He's the one who summoned us here in the first place. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for every person in this auditorium and those online and their personal churches and their own individual journeys and us in our, our big C church experience today. We're not just standing in the midst of a church service. We're standing in the midst of our lives, our stories, our battles, our triumphs, our trials, our troubles, our stresses, our anxieties. And I want to ask you to speak. I confess in my friend's presence here, though I love them much, I have nothing to say to them that would be of any value unless what I say is rooted in your word and enabled by your spirit. And so Holy Spirit, come. Ignite your word. We're at a very critical time as individuals, yes, as a church, yes, but also as a nation. May our ultimate hope be not in any political process, but in King Jesus. I ask this in his name. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. It is great to see you guys here. Congratulations on remembering about the time change. You know, I don't know if you're aware or not, but we're in the midst of a political campaign season. <laughs> and today's theme about getting to know our faith and who Jesus is, is the, is the one who provides peace for us. It's, it's so appropriate because I know when you hear the, the, the phrase political campaign, one of the first words that comes to mind is peace, isn't it? I mean, it's just such a peaceful time. <laughs> Ironically, even though those two are worlds apart, politics and peace, ironically, more often than maybe we would like to admit, we look to politics for peace. It's incredible how often we are consumed with the somewhat important. And while doing that, we ignore that which is ultimately important. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were on a camping trip one time. I don't know if you knew they 
uh, went camping, but I happen to know that. And you, you can imagine the type of meal that Sherlock Holmes would prepare, gourmet meal. Dr. Watson was so impressed and every, all of these gourmet dishes and they were just stuffed. So they settled into their tent for a great night's rest in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes woke up and nudged Dr. Watson next to him, all tucked away in his sleeping bag and groggily woke up and he says, Holmes, what is it? He said, Dr. Watson, I'd like for you to look up. What do you see? He said, I see millions of stars. He says, what does that tell you, Dr. Watson? And he was always asking those kind of questions, so he gave it some thought. So I said, well, you know, I mean, astronomically it tells me that there are millions of stars and millions of planets and probably millions of galaxies. Astrologically, it tells me that Saturn is, is in Leo. Uh, theologically, it tells me that I'm finite and God is infinite. Uh, horologically, it tells me it's probably, as I deduce, about half past three in the morning. Meteorologically, it tells me that we're probably in for some nice weather tomorrow. He's all kind of proud of himself, looked over and says, Dr. Holmes, what do you see when you see all those stars? Holmes looked at him and said, Dr. Watson, it tells me that someone stole our tent. <laughs> Sometimes we spend so much time looking at that which is somewhat important that we overlook that which is of ultimate importance. And that's no more true than in political seasons. We've all got storms going on in our lives, hurricanes in our hearts. Maybe it's uh, a relational issue or something financial or vocational, or maybe it's health, the doctor's news or an upcoming doctor's appointment. Uh, the list goes on and on, but you know what? This season, more than any in recent memory, is causing a lot of people a lot of stress. It's kind of, are you kidding me type of stuff? And what are we going to do? And oh my, and we're wringing our hands. And this week, because of Tuesday's primary here in Florida and a number of other states, it's a significant week. But it's significant not only because of our political calendar, it's significant because of our liturgical calendar. I've got here a ballot. If you guys want to go ahead and vote for the Florida primary, you can. That might be a little illegal right now, so maybe not, but here's a ballot. And here's a palm branch having to do with next Sunday, which is Palm Sunday. So we've got primary Tuesday and Palm Sunday. Do they have anything to do with one another? Does anything connect a palm branch and a ballot? Let's find out. And in doing so, does it have anything to do with our yearning for peace? Our yearning, our longing for God to still the hurricanes in our hearts. If you've got your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 19. If you don't, you can look on the screens and read along with us, beginning in verse 28. This is the account we'll look at this week and also next week uh, of Palm Sunday. 
After Jesus had said this, this is verse 28, Luke 19, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Now, that was a very typical thing that disciples or Talmudine, students of a rabbi would say. Getting something for the rabbi, they'd tell people, this is for the rabbi, he needs it. Those, were sent, those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it as he went along. People spread their cloaks on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. I'm gonna read that verse again. He said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you what? Peace but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side and they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This passage has so much to do, not just with next Sunday, but next Tuesday. And has so much to do with whatever hurricane you've got going on in your heart. We're going to unpack that, but let me first give you some background of what you and I just read. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll see that Jerusalem is located on what they call a mountain. I'm from Colorado, so I call it a big hill. But on the west, there's Tyropian Valley. On the east is the Kidron Valley. So as you're looking east, looking out over the Kidron Valley toward the Mount of Olives, You'll notice a bunch of, first glance, it looks like a lot of rocks and, and boulders. But upon closer examination, those aren't rocks, they're tombstones. Hundreds of thousands of them. In fact, archaeologists estimate that there might be as upwards of five to seven, eight million tombs, burials in that, in that entire region. And they're not on, one on top of one another. It's, it's, a, it's a cemetery, so to speak, that goes back to the time of King David, a thousand years before Jesus was born. Now, if you go over to that side of the valley and look back towards the Temple Dome, back towards Jerusalem, you'll, in, in a sense, be standing in the midst of all those tombstones. Of course, though, you're not really because you're on a road, a road that leads from Bethpage, Bethany to Jerusalem. Uh, it's a road that gets paved every couple of decades. Obviously, it wasn't paved in Jesus' day. However, that road is not built on top of any tombs. Orthodox Judaism would never never allow that. So it's most assuredly that the path when you go to Israel and you walk on that road, you are walking on this, along the same route that Jesus and his disciples walked in this passage that you and I just saw. 
It's got walls on either side. The walls are not original, uh, but the tombstones are. In fact, they, they would whitewash the tombs two or three in so that uh, pilgrims at night could pass through and, and find their way. It's what Jesus was referring to in Matthew 23 when he says, you're like, if you're, you religious people are like whitewashed tombs, you get things cleaned up on the outside, on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Now the wall is not original, but there was a wall, assuredly back then as well. The walls were there to keep pilgrims from brushing up against tombstones. An Orthodox Jew coming on pilgrimage uh, would become ceremonially unclean if they touched a tomb. And so that wall was to keep them there. And as you see, as you walk through it, you begin to notice. I remember a couple of times I've been there, it's, it's small in places. There's no grandstands. So this was a place where the, the throngs, I mean, these disciples pressing in on Jesus and this chanting about this king that's coming, that's where it happens. And there was great anticipation because to the Jews, East is life. The sun rises in the east. God comes from the east. The ark entered Jerusalem from the east. And Messiah would approach from the east. And this is on the east side of Jerusalem heading in. And when I begin to enter into this is when I can start to understand this whole thing about peace. For my hurricanes, peace in the midst of some political process. And it all comes down to three basics. We're going to look at them one at a time. Here's the first one. First aspect of peace that I've got to understand for my hurricane, whatever it is right now. And by the way, if you're not in a hurricane, you will be later this week. That's my encouragement to you uh, or in a couple of weeks. Jesus says in this world, you'll have trouble. In a fallen world, we're going from hurricane to hurricane to hurricane. It's always there. So here's the first aspect I need to remember. I need to remember the what of peace. I need to embrace it and, and, and begin to in, engage with it. So I've got a pop quiz. You guys like pop quizzes, right? Yeah, you do, because you know you're not going to get graded. But here we go. Question number one. How, did the hundred, how long did the Hundred Years' War last? <laughs> Smarty there, uh, 116 years. Thank you very much. Question two. Which country makes Panama hats? Ecuador. Question three. In which month do the Russians celebrate the October Revolution? November. Question four, what is real peace? And appropriately, you're hesitating. We think we know, but too often we don't get the what of peace and therefore we get off kilter before we even get started. Biblically, peace or shalom as the Hebrew word is, 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 is not referring to something that happens on the outside, but something that happens on the inside. Biblical shalom isn't related to my circumstances, relating to something going on inside. Biblical shalom is not so much referring to the absence of something, meaning conflict or turmoil, as it is referring to the presence of something. The presence of a wholeness, a sense of God's enoughness. Uh, as, as one theologian said, the it, biblical shalom, peace, is the possession of adequate resources. That's what stresses us out, isn't it? We're thinking, I'm not going to have enough resources, whatever it might be, to cope with this. And what was grieving Jesus is that they were missing the what of peace. You go back to the text, Luke 19, verse 42. He says, if you, even you, had only known the what of peace, if only known in this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. They, they didn't get it. What's the evidence of that? 
obviously there's a number of pieces of evidence that they weren't getting the real, the, the what of real peace. One of them is what they were carrying. Now Luke doesn't record it, but John does. And the reason for that is Luke's audience uh, was different than John's. John's audience when he was writing his gospel was primarily for Jews. And so he brought up the palm branches that they were uh, where we get the, the name Palm Sunday for. And the significance of that goes way back in the history of, of Israel. You see, what's unique is palm branches are here, here in Orlando, everybody thinks palm branches are everywhere. I live in Colorado, I can tell you, palm branches are not everywhere. And palm, the, the palm tree was not native to Jerusalem either. They were on the coast. Uh, palm branches had to be shipped in, brought in. And they were in the fall for the Feast of Tabernacles. Because of Psalm 118 that talks about that with... <clears throat> these palm branches, and they, they would use these to celebrate. But this was the spring. This was Passover. What was the significance of the palm branch in the springtime? And what clue did they give Jesus that people were not getting the what of real peace? Well, on the back of a shekel, a coin in Jesus' day, you would see the Israeli, the Jewish national symbol. It was the palm branch. To understand that, you got to do a whirlwind tour of Jewish history. You ready? You got to be ready because we're about to fly. 1000 BC, David, King David enters Jerusalem. It was a settlement there, but he made it the capital, brought in the ark. His son Solomon built the temple. Beautiful. For a couple of centuries, there's peace and prosperity. 586 BC, the Chaldeans came in from Babylon and leveled Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took the, uh, the Israelites off to exile for about 50 years. Then they came back. They were still under Persian oppression, but they rebuilt the temple, though not to its original glory. And they, after them came the, after the Persians came the Hellenists who were oppressing uh, the Israelites. And then in 164 BC, a Jewish family called the the Maccabees led a revolt against the oppressors and they were successful. And in the ceremony of commemorating that they were now once again in control of Jerusalem, in control of their national identity, they used the palm branch. And from then on, that's when it became a national and nationalistic symbol. The Maccabean uh, regime lasted, and that peace, uh, supposedly, that political independence lasted for about 100 years to 64 BC when the Romans came in and conquered and began to rule. And the Romans would use puppet leaders from the Jews, uh, like Herod, that were Jewish, but they were sold out to the Romans. And after Herod died in 4 BC, then his sons took over, and they were knuckleheads, and they went one after another after another. Pilate was one of these that was then... He was one of the governors because the sons didn't work out. All the while, you had a, a, a large contingent of, of Jews that called themselves zealots who were bucking the system, going against this, this oppression. And there were two primary points of tension for the zealots. Number one, they wanted to see Israel restored to its political independence. And two, the temple system that was very much involved, the political leaders and the religious leaders were oftentimes one and the same and overlapped in Israel. But the, uh, the, the temple system had become corrupt. 
The politics had corrupted them. They had been sold out. They were bought off by the Roman government. And so the, the zealots not only wanted political independence, but they wanted a restoration of their spiritual heritage and spiritual health. So I'm going to say this again. I'm going to say it and I want you to listen very carefully. The zealots were passionate about getting their nation back politically and spiritually. Sound familiar? Comes up every four years. And they knew that this is what we, we want. So I want to go back and read that same text again. Luke chapter 19, verse 42. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus is saying that to a throng of people that had this political, nationalistic independence on their mind, and they wanted someone to change their circumstances. The zealots' favorite holiday was Passover. Why? Because it was celebrating Israel's rescue from Egyptian oppression. At Passover, the population of Jerusalem would swell to about a million people. Three to 4,000 soldiers, Roman soldiers would be brought in to keep the peace. Just a few years before, often zealot rebellions happened around Passover because that's when they, could, they felt like they could get the most population going and stirred up in a frenzy. Just a few years before, seven, 8,000 people had been killed at Passover by the Roman soldiers because uh, a rebellion was attempted that wasn't successful. So in the midst of this frenzy, when these people are coming up and, and, and waving their nationalistic symbol and saying, Jesus, once you come and change our circumstances, our Messiah is here. He says, if only you'd known what would bring you peace. You see, the what of peace has to do with my yearning on a heart level not my circumstances. So often we define peace, the what of peace, as our circumstances getting put into the right place and we ignore that true peace is a matter of the heart, not merely my circumstances. So right now, what's gonna bring you peace? Is it just a change in circumstances? That's not biblical shalom. In fact, you know what? I've known people that got their circumstances because of money and fame and power. They got about as good a circumstances as you can imagine. And their heart is still a hurricane. That's why Jim Carrey, I brought it up to you before, the actors said, I wish everybody could be rich and famous so they would figure out that's not the answer. I've also known people whose circumstances were atrocious, but their hearts were at peace. Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 30. A heart at peace gives life to the body. A 
heart at peace, not circumstances at peace. John 14, verse 27, Jesus says, peace I leave you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. In other words, I define peace differently than the world does. The world defines it as the massage and the manipulation of circumstances. I'm going to give you something deeper. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to be strong enough, as Ryan was singing over us a minute ago. John 16, 33, I've told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have good circumstances. No, I've told you things so that in me you, you may have peace. In this world, you might have trouble. No, you will have trouble. You know what the Greek word there for will means? Will. That's why I told you earlier, if you don't have a hurricane going on right now, you will. It's just part of living in a fallen world. But notice what Jesus says. He says, but take heart. On a heart level, I want you to embrace that I've overcome the world. True peace is experienced on a heart level, not circumstances. The second aspect of peace, if I'm going to address whatever hurricane I've got going on, or maybe the stress of the political season and what's going to happen with what candidate, there's a second aspect of peace that I've got to grasp, engage, and, and submit to. It's not just the what of peace, which has to do with my heart, not my circumstances, but secondly, it's the, the who of peace. I've got to understand the who of peace, who provides peace. Go back to the story, and there's one little part that, you, if you've been in church for a long time, you've picked up what I refer to as the corn on the cob uh, version of reading scripture. It's a method. And here's how, the, the, here's how it works. You go, do we just fly through passages that we're familiar with? Oh yeah, he gets on a donkey, comes on in. Stop. Why did he get on a donkey? They've, tra they've traveled from the Galilee. 100 kilometers, and then they've meandered and wandered. Minimum, it would take five days just straight through. So they've been walk all on foot, walking the whole way. Now they're within a quarter mile of Jerusalem. They can see it right across the Kidron Valley. So you're telling me at that moment, after all of this travel, Jesus is going to say, guys, uh, I, need you to get a, I need you to get a donkey. I can't, I can't go any further. Really? No. Uh, why? Let me give you a four-letter word. Eruv. E-R-U-V. It's Hebrew. In fact, you can, it's transliteration of Hebrew. You, an interesting Google search is you can Google Eruv in Manhattan. And you'll see lots of dialogue about what I'm about to tell you, at least in New York. And Eruv is a boundary around a village or a city that Orthodox Jews need in order to maintain their orthodoxy and observance of Shabbat or Sabbath. It's the city limits officially. And in the law, it's dictated how far you can travel from the city on Sabbath. You can't go any further, that'll be work. You can't carry too much weight. And so it's very important for an Orthodox Jew to know where the Aruv to his or her village is or city. So that, that, and so that, I mean, it's a very specific spot. It's like some of these, you know, whenever you cross the city limits, I mean, it is the line. 
And in, like in New York, you can see it, it lo almost looks like telephone wires. Unless you're looking for it, you won't notice them in different parts of Manhattan. The Aruv for Jerusalem in Jesus' day was Bethpage, where this incident that you and I are just reading about happened. It's at Bethpage at the Aruv, at the boundary, the city limits of Jerusalem, where Jesus asked for the donkey. Now hear the prophet Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. This is a prophecy about Messiah coming. Oh, shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. And then five chapters later in Zechariah 14, verse 4, on that day, Messiah's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Getting on that donkey in the Mount of Olives at Bethpage, at the Aruv, stepping into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is saying unequivocally, I am Messiah. I've come. And they got that. Go back to the text. Verse 38, Luke 19. That's why they were saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they were, they were calling him king. They were embracing that. But get this, it's very important. They were calling him king, but they were treating him as a candidate, a political candidate. They were calling him king but they were treating him like a candidate. How are candidates treated? The can political candidates invite this. What do you want? R really? Okay, I'll do that for you. Will you vote for me? Great, great. How about you? What would you like? Oh, that's who I am. That's what I am all about. So you'll vote for me too. And it really doesn't matter if what you want and what you want are diametrically opposed. Uh, political candidates, I know this will shock you, have been known to say yes to both. <laughs> because political candidates re respond to the prescription of constituents, the desires, the whims, the wants. And what these people are saying when they say, blessed is the king, they're saying, Blessed is the candidate who's going to give us what we want, which means he's going to come and change our circumstances and give us a false peace. The who of peace is all about looking to Jesus and embracing Jesus as king, not as candidate. And that means a couple of things. Number one, I'm not looking at Jesus as, uh, as a candidate, but nor am I trying to extract from Jesus what only a candidate can give me in terms of my preference. He's not one of many candidates. He's only Jesus. And even as Jesus, he's king and he's not candidate. 
Several years ago, Kevin DeYoung wrote a blog talking about the real Jesus. And he says, we get confused on this. There's, we have so many versions of Jesus. There's a Republican Jesus who's against tax increases and activist judges, and he's for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus who's against Wall Street and Walmart, and he's for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. I don't really like that part. I'm a Denver Broncos fan and uh, never mind. There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential and reach for the stars and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, who'd rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's a good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick and give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners and proclaim good news to the poor, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth in the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the command, reverse the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of in the serpent, to, the, of the, of, to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was king, the Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the political climate or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and our God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. He's more holy and loving and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. That is the Jesus of Nazareth. That is the who. That's the who of peace. He's king, a king to be submitted to not pandered before. He's not a candidate to be manipulated to change my circumstances, but a king to be submitted to who will change my heart and give me life and life with a capital L. Restore me to the trajectory I was meant for. Which leads us to the third question, the third aspect of peace. There's the what of peace and the who of peace, but there's also the how of peace. The how, how do we get peace? A long ago mentor of mine, Bob Weber, was on a plane 
He was on a flight from San Francisco to L.A. He was reading a Christian book. The guy next to him, who he said was obviously from the Eastern Hemisphere, noticed his book and said, are you a Christian? He said, I am. So they started talking about spiritual things. Had a great conversation. Uh, in, well into the conversation, uh, Bob asked him, hey, would you do me a favor? Would you just summarize for me in one sentence your religious beliefs? And I said, that's a great question. He thought about it. and He said, yeah, here you go. We're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution. Bob said, that's good. That's, it's very interesting. I, I like it. They talked about it for a while and then the guy turned the question and Bob was very grateful that he did. He said, how about you? Uh, how would you summarize Christianity? And Dr. Robert Weber said, we're all part of the problem, but the solution is found in only one man, Jesus Christ. And from, that's very simple, but it's not simplistic. It focuses in on the heart of the gospel. That the way you and I find this new life is through Jesus alone. He is way. He is truth. He's life. Peter says something very interesting and transformational if you submit to it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life. We all hunger for life with a capital L. We're, we're rescued from an empty way of life. Handed down to you from your ancestors. But instead you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb. How did John the Baptist introduce Jesus? Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From Isaiah 53, this lamb that gives himself, Messiah is the lamb that is slaughtered. Without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. What's the how of peace? So often we think peace comes from everybody else straightening their act up so that I can have a better, less stressful environment. But biblical shalom says the how of peace is when I address my own sin, not just the sins of others. In the political process, Everybody's pointing to each other's sins. That does not lead to peace. What leads me to peace is when I address my own sin and the only way I can address my own sin is through Jesus Christ. The only way I can know the peace of God, and it's not a cliche, it's often repeated, but hear it. The only way that I can, I can begin to experience the peace of God is to first have peace with God. Rob read it earlier, Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, 
we have peace with God through our good behavior. No. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Peter mentioned the Lamb. I'll never forget one time standing on that very road, the path leading from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, one time with Ray Vanderlaan, been to Israel a couple of times with him. And he took me back to Exodus 12 that describes when in Passover they were told to select their lamb. And this continued for millennia. Passover. The first corporate celebration of God's substitutionary sacrifice. When a lamb was slain, the blood was put on the, the doorpost to signify, God, we are trusting in what you've said. We're not trusting in us. What happens in me as a follower of Christ, the way I become such is I say, God, I owe a penalty for my rebelliousness against your rule in my life. And I, it would take me forever, infinity to pay it. But instead, I want to trust in what Jesus has done on the cross is the infinite God man who paid a penalty for me. That's why he's referred to as the lamb. But what hit me when Ray was talking is families were to pick a lamb on the 10th day of the month. The 14th was Passover. That's when they'd celebrate the meal. And that was that coming Thursday night at sundown into Friday of Holy Week. But Lamb Selection Day was the 10th, which was Sunday. What you and I have just been talking about, Palm Sunday, was Lamb Selection Day. Jesus and his disciples were going to the eastern gate of the city, to Bethsaida, to the lamb market, to buy a lamb for them to celebrate. But not only were they going to select a lamb, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was coming to offer himself as the lamb and it would be the last Passover that would be the precursor to the lamb of God from that point on we go not through a small finite lamb but through the infinite lamb of God but Jesus was grieved and he was weeping I want to remind you of something that people often, they, this whole deal of them calling out Hosanna to him. You'd think Jesus would be a little giddy and saying, oh, shucks. No. He was grieved. In fact, the Pharisees said, shut your disciples up. And Jesus said, if they don't praise me, the stones will cry out. And people think, well, that's, that's a giddy statement and saying, no, no, no. It was a rabbinical technique called a remez. A rabbi at times, when being asked a question by uh, his disciples, his, his students, instead of giving them a direct answer, would give them a, a portion, a quotation from Torah, the scripture passage. And those students needed to know the overall context of that statement to know what he was saying. What Jesus, when he says the stones will cry out, is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, describing that the walls of Jerusalem cried out in the destruction when the Chaldeans came in 586 BC. And what Jesus is saying, he is saying, my heart is grieved because they are not grasping real peace and as a result of their, uh, their, their attempt to embrace me as a candidate but reject me as the overall king and the lamb, 
the same thing is going to happen again. The stones of the city are going to cry out because they are rejecting me. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was leveled, never to be rebuilt. It's, there are only two times that Jesus is described as crying, as weeping. Scripture one is in John 11, and both were right at the same location. John 11, Lazarus' death, it says Jesus wept. But the Greek word used there means he wept quietly. He, he weeps for us all as we're journeying through a fallen world and he anticipates with us in his mysterious timing when he will make all things new and everything will be healed. But in the meantime, Jesus' compassion for you and me in the midst of our hurricanes is there. He weeps quietly, but, but there's another weeping and it's here. And the Greek word used here in this text is he wept loudly, almost shaking in sobs. Why? Because they had rejected who he was and tried to make him something else. And what's assured is that Jesus weeps for every one of us in our hurricanes. He identifies with us. He's, he's become flesh. He knows that. So it's a given, thankfully, that Jesus weeps for you and me and whatever difficulty you're dealing with. But here's my question to you. Does he weep loudly for you? Does he weep loudly because you and I do not come to him for true peace? But instead we rely on a political process or we rely on our circumstance manipulation instead of him. I love democracy and I love our country. But the problem is when our democracy influences our theology. And we begin to think that Jesus was voted into office. The political process is important, but it's not of ultimate importance for your shalom. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you are doing in each of our journeys and for the way that you are leading us. To taste peace. All of us are weary from the counterfeit peace that we've pursued. And we today want to reestablish the who, the what, and the how of biblical shalom. That it's not just circumstances as our heart. It's, it's not treating you as a candidate or going to some other political candidate for peace, but it's, it's coming to you as king. And it's not a matter of addressing everybody else's sins and getting them to straighten themselves up so we can be happier. It's us humbling ourselves before you and first experiencing peace with you so that we can know the peace of God. So we come to you with our hurricanes and ask you, Prince of Peace, rule in our hearts, Lamb of God, see our hearts bowed in grateful dependence upon the grace that only you can lavish on us and the shalom that only you can provide. I pray this in the name of the Prince of Peace and the Lamb of God. Amen.